Hello, welcome to the conversation by ELL Media Network. I am Ed Stone French. And I'm Preeti Gogoi. This is a radio podcast for American news, culture, and information for English language learners. We are English language educators who have created this show to talk about American news, culture, and politics for the benefit of English language learners. We are using simple language accessible to the second language learner to introduce them to current issues in American culture and society. Our guest today is Aaron Hawley. Today's show is about characteristics of the American elections and what makes this one the same or different. I want to welcome Aaron Hawley to the show today. He's the program developer of the Reed College of Media at WVU. He develops academic programming for the Department of Journalism. He is also a political nerd. Glad to be here. Okay, so today we are talking about uh, characteristics in the American election. And we've got a number of things that make the American election. It's the things that people look for every four years. So we all know that there's going to be campaign messaging, advertising, there's going to be raising money. There are endorsements, there's debates, uh, and there are other things that we talk about. We talk a lot about tax returns for the presidential candidates. We talk about the president's health. Um, So let's start with campaign messaging. Aaron, can you give us an introduction to what we look for in campaign messaging in a normal American presidential election? Well, your typical political ad, whether it's for president or for the Senate or for Congress or even for smaller local elections, uh, your typical ad is going to promote the good characteristics of your candidate, uh, good mostly being defined by what you think that your potential voters might be looking for. And you're going to contrast them against all the bad characteristics uh, of your opponent. And and that's pretty much what you can expect out of any campaign. What, you know, this is what my candidate's going to do for you. And this is what sets my candidate apart from the other guy. So can we look at um, examples of uh, uh, just big picture examples of other campaign messaging? So um, Barack Obama in 2008, for example. Well, I mean, obviously Obama's whole campaign was hope and change. Mm -hmm. And that was really the most basic contrast he could have made uh, against the Republican Party. Uh, Now, he, of course, was running for president against John McCain. But that election in 2008 was more of a uh, referendum Uh, on George W. Bush, who'd been the president for eight years, uh, you know, had to step down because you can only serve two terms as president. But the, the, you know, Obama's basic message was, I will give you hope if you change your representation in the White House. And and I think and I think that's pretty common uh, for a lot of campaigns, especially when you're talking about uh, trying to win back the White House from the other party. When uh, when 
the same party that's been in the White House is trying to uh, hold the White House, then you you really are going to want to focus on on all the good things that that your party has done, and and that dynamic is playing out somewhat in 2016. So change is a common theme in presidential elections. In, in almost any election, because you you have the incumbent who's the person who's currently holding that office, and then you're almost always guaranteed to have someone who is seeking that office who hasn't held it. Um, and, and you don't always have an incumbent in cases of, you know, when, when a politician dies or retires or, or runs for a different office. But, but in a lot of cases you have the, the person who holds the office versus the person who's seeking the office. And, and the person seeking the office always has an incentive to say uh, the the best thing you can do for whether it's your your state or your country is to change your representation. So uh, do you mean to say that change is the main theme that uh, is like, you know, campaigned or I mean the campaign message if, if you if you are trying to contest against the incumbent. So are there examples anywhere where the presidents have not been able to get the second term? Because the uh, campaign message has been totally different than only change itself. Well, I mean, th there are plenty of examples where the president has not managed to win uh, a second term. I mean, most recently it was George Herbert Walker Bush in the 1992 election. Uh, he he was reelected, or he was elected for the first time in 1988, pretty much because he was just Ronald Reagan's vice president. Uh, and then, so that meant the Republicans held the White House for 12 years, but he, you know, you had Bill Clinton come in as the change candidate. S sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but you're, you're almost always going to have a candidate in an election saying, you know, rallying around that message. In this election, it's Donald Trump. A and part of the reason why Trump has been successful, uh, really in the face of saying a lot of outrageous things is because the message that we need to change the people in charge is always going to appeal to people. And it almost doesn't matter what the election is. There's always going to be somebody who says we need to change mm -hmm. our leadership. Um, so um, so also uh, then I, I can ahead. I ask you a question? So uh, the question is like, for example, uh, I mean, I, I would like to ask you for instances where, uh, like for the Democrats or the Republicans, have continued uh, to be in power for a longer period, uh, like say for example, for 16 years, so which is like four terms. Sure. After 1950s, not the, before that? Well, I, I don't, I'm not sure if it's happened since the 1950s. Um, it, it's really hard for uh, single party to hold the White House for more than eight years or 12 years. Um, you have, you know, just looking since the end of World War II, uh, you had Democrats in the White House during World War II, then immediately following that you had a Republican in the White House, though Eisenhower is almost an apolitical figure. Uh, as president, he, he really was elected on the strength of, of his performance as the general in World War II. Um, and then after that, you have, uh, you know, you, you, have, you have eight years of Democrats, you have eight years of Republicans. Uh, it, it really does bounce back and forth. And, and, and in America, I think change is a really 
um, it's a really alluring idea. You know, that, that's sort of what the, the, the American government system is based on. It's like that you can change it at any time if you have a grievance. And, uh, it, hey, people always have grievances. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Life is not always working out for some uh, group of people. And, and I think it's, it's, a, it's really appealing. And it's tough because, you know, the president, for better or for worse, gets to take credit for all the good things and gets blamed for all the bad things, right. whether or not they're actually in control of any of those things. I mean, Bill Clinton gets a lot of credit for a booming economy in the late 90s. You know, he just happened to be president when the internet was invented. I mean, that it's it's hard to uh, to really pin all the blame or all the credit on any one person. So, what about times when um, it's not a change candidate, but they, for example, um, the re-election of uh, George W. Bush, mm-hmm. uh, or I mean, the, or the re-election of, of Barack Obama. Why, why did the message of George W. Bush in uh, 2004 work? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I, I think in 2004, you got to yeah. remember the United States is at war. Yeah. And, and I think for the most part, the electorate in the United States has not voted to change the commander-in-chief during wartime. Now, it, it happened during the Vietnam War because uh, the Vietnam War sort of started very slow. And, in fact, Vietnam runs through uh, the you know, the administrations of, of three different presidents, but, you know, they, they kept George Bush in there because we, we, we'd gone to war in Iraq. We were at war in Afghanistan. Um, and, and the same thing happened in world war two, the same thing happened, uh, during the civil war. So, I mean, it's, I I think that specifically is what, uh, helped George W. Bush win reelection. But I, but I think that, most presidents win re-election on a message of we must continue on the path that we're on. If if the people are, the, and by the people I really just mean the, the entire electorate, if they're not optimistic about their opportunities, then they're going to vote the guy out. And it, if they are optimistic, there's there's no reason to you know, change paths. I, I feel like, and I as a Democrat who who voted for Barack Obama in 2012, I kind of felt like there was still work to be done and I wanted him to continue doing that work. And, and, and I, and I figure, and obviously I can't speak for, you know, all the voters, but I I think that that's probably a pretty common uh, response to a president running for reelection. If you like what they're doing, uh, then you, then you stay the course. And in a lot of cases, that's Hillary Clinton's message right now. She's trying to tie herself very closely to Barack Obama and saying the you know if you're happy with the direction the country is headed then I'm the candidate you want to vote for and Trump is the one coming in as the change candidate saying uh, you, you're not getting a good deal if you think you're not getting a good deal or if you think you're worse off than you were eight years ago vote for me and I, I think that's a pretty common dynamic in, in a lot of elections especially at the presidential level okay um, we will return to a discussion of the current election in more detail. Um, I want to hit like big ideas first and then get in 
get into the weeds a little bit. Um, sure. What about raising money? And what is a PAC? So a PAC stands for Political Action Committee. Uh, and it's just an organization that people can donate money to. And then that organization can use that money to uh, try and influence elections. And the, the key distinguisher about the PACs is that there's not a lot of regulation or limits to how much money you can donate. Where there are strict federal election laws that say that there is a limit to how much money that you can donate. The uh, the most important thing to understand as a PAC is that, you know, Aaron Hawley uh, and Ed French are limited to how much money that they can give a candidate as individuals. But if Aaron Hawley and Ed French decide to uh, get together and call ourselves the First Ward School alumni super PAC, then we can, we can spend as much money as we want on the election. And, uh, and that is, is a total outcome of the Citizens United decision by the Supreme Court. And, uh, and it's really affected uh, campaigns. And, and, and it's really been the sort of biggest change to the political system and the way campaigns are run in the last few years. How much in, of an impact has it had on actually deciding elections? It's hard to say, but uh, they're super PACs, as they're often called. Uh, you know, they're, they can they can try and influence the election, and, and maybe they are influencing it. It's it's really hard to say. They're not supposed to coordinate with the actual campaigns, which makes it very strange. Right. So the the campaign can't talk to the pack about what they're doing, but the campaign can go onto television and say, we're going to be in Des Moines, Iowa next week. And then the pack can go to Des Moines, Iowa and spend money. Right. Uh, so, and, and I mean, theoretically the super PAC could run a political ad. That's the opposite of what that candidate stands for, but you know, that doesn't ever happen. <laughs> Right. So, uh, go ahead, Pretty. So, do these PACs actually register somewhere, saying that, uh, like, we are going to be a PAC, and we will sponsor, or, I mean, we, we will spend money for this candidate, or are PACs allowed to spend money on both candidates if they want to? Or is it just, like, you know, they are affiliated to a particular party, as in the Republicans or the Democrats? Uh, it, it can be either. It, I mean, it, the thing about the PACs is that they're just not regulated. Um, there are PACs that are dedicated to specific candidates. Um, the Red, Ready for Hillary was the name of the super PAC that started uh, raising money for Hillary Clinton even before she declared that she was running for president. Uh, they just sort of knew that she was going to run or they, they felt like it was a pretty good chance, so they'd start raising money. Um, and, and most of the major candidates have PACs that pretty much w the one issue they focus on is the candidate. But then there are also uh, PACs that, that focus on issues. So there may be a, uh, you know, a gun control uh, super PAC that spends money in many races because and they want to support candidates that support their issue. But there 
and they may donate to candidate or run ads supporting candidates of either party. Uh, there's just there's just no requirements. I mean, they have to register, they have to say who they are, but they don't have to say who's giving them money. They don't have to say how much money that they're being given. Uh, really, the sort of other than the very basic knowledge of what they are, they they're not responsible to disclose anything in the way that the candidates are, and uh, and that's what makes them such a useful tool for the candidates. And this is where the fear that uh, foreign countries and companies, corporations can spend a lot of money on influencing American elections. Exactly. Um, corporations aren't actually allowed to donate to candidates. Uh, so you might be the CEO of Exxon Mobil. You're allowed to give whatever the individual contribution is, but you, the company is not allowed to give money, but the company can give money to a super PAC. So... I mean, it really all, – all you have to know about PACs is that they're just a way to get around election laws. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, with anything, the – you know, it doesn't matter what game you're in, whether you're uh, – you know, you're always trying to stay one step ahead of the rules. And, and that's what super PACs are. So uh, to rewind this just a little bit, um, a candidate – has to raise money to run for president, right? Running for president is generally considered very expensive. Uh, uh, it, yes. <laughs> so they need to raise million, I think hundreds of millions of dollars, close to a billion dollars to run for president now. Um, I think, right, in 2012, Obama had close to a billion dollars. I think that's fair to yeah. say. Um, how does a candidate raise money? Uh, who do they raise it from? Um, and can we can we look at um, comparisons? Right, Barack Obama versus John McCain, or well, Obama. We can Go ahead. <laughs> we can look at comparisons uh, because I, you know, managed to look that stuff up in advance of this episode. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> um, the reality is it takes a lot of money. How much money uh, it is going to take is an always moving figure. Uh, and whether or not the money is well spent is always, uh, I think, in debate. And one of the things that this election is te teaching us is maybe that, that it's not always well spent. But right now, because right now you have Hillary Clinton, uh, she has raised uh, in the last maybe 14 or 18 months from the start of 2015 through the middle of 2016, she raised $435 million. Uh, Donald Trump in that same period of time has only raised $125 million dollars. And yet the margin in the polls right now is much closer than, than the margin in the fundraising. Uh, it, it's whether it has to cost this much money, whether it should cost this much money, whether this much money is worth spending in the first place, and to some extent whether or not this much money actually gets the people who contributed the money in the first place what they wanted. I think those are all questions that, that can't be answered. Uh, about politics right now. Endorsements. Uh, what is an endorsement? 
endorsement is is pretty simple. It's when uh, someone goes tells the public which candidate they're supporting. And uh, some obviously some endorsements mean more than others. My endorsement, your endorsement, Pretty's endorsement, eh, they might not mean that much. Uh, former presidents, former congressmen, current senators, other elected officials, those endorsements mean a lot, or they can. Uh, but right now, again, you have an election where you don't know how important they are because the candidate who is winning the endorsement battle uh, handily is only currently up in the polls right now by less than 1%, and that's Hillary Clinton, who has more endorsements from more uh, current and former high-ranking government officials than probably any candidate in history, and Trump has almost none. Uh, what was what was very unique about the Republican National Convention this year was how much Trump's family was on stage. Uh, families typically don't play a big role in political campaigns because most people assume that you know you, you really can't take their endorsement seriously. You know, I'm going to say nice things about my dad, regardless of what his political policies are. <laughs> but in this, you know, the Trumps didn't really have anybody. Whereas when you look at the Democratic convention, you had the current president, you had the current first lady, the current vice president, uh, the, you know, Bill Clinton, who's a former president, Elizabeth Warren, current senator, uh, Bernie Sanders, current senator and Democratic runner-up. I mean, you had all of these high-ranking political figures uh, come out and say that Hillary Clinton was the right candidate, which is very common and and is a very sort of old-school way to politic. But so Trump didn't get a lot of endorsements, even from other Republicans running for president. Yes, and that's very unique at this. At this point in the in the election, typically the the parties are unified, and that the Republicans all support the Republican nominee, the Democrats all support support the Democratic nominee. But the the thing about Trump, what he's really sort of he's scrambled just a lot of uh, sort of typical outcomes, and and that's one of them that he has not, and, and he's currently fighting with Republican officials. I mean, John Kasich, who's the Republican governor of Ohio, which is one of the most important uh, states to win uh, in the Electoral College, has been out in the media bashing Trump. And, and that, that's just unheard of, at least in the last, you know, the modern era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is really interesting because uh, if you look at other political systems of other countries or nations, I mean, usually people who belong to a particular party after uh, like you know the final candidate has been declared you kind of go and like you know it's unsaid you have to kind of endorse your final candidate i think this is what makes the us system a little more unique is like you can like there are there are people like uh, uh, many candidates who were, where they are not supporting him i mean they they openly and publicly said that we are not endorsing Jeb Bush, uh, for example. Like, for example, yes. Sure. Jeb Bush. He says, like, I'm not endorsing uh, Trump. I mean, so, but they still continue to be in the party. Sure. Uh, so I, I don't really know how political parties are organized in other countries. Mm -hmm. uh, the political parties in the United States are very pliable. And by that, I mean they change shape constantly. 
the uh, they also change positions. Uh, I mean, in a lot of cases, the Democrats hold positions today that were traditionally Republican positions 60 or 70 years ago and, and vice versa. And, and I, I think Trump, Trump is a once in a lifetime political figure, at, at least in America. And, and the $100,000 question about Donald Trump is, is he an anomaly? Is this a, a once in a lifetime occurrence? Or is he just an example of the new normal, and, and that's something that that we as a country really have to reckon with. And uh, I th- I think in in many ways, that's the most uh, interesting or or terrifying potential outcome of this election, more so than who actually wins it, Trump or Clinton. Okay, um, I want to come back to that, but I've got a I've got a list of important sure. things. Uh, the debates are coming up uh, there on um, there next week uh, on Monday. And um, what do, what should people look for? Like, what do we look for traditionally in presidential debates? And what are we going to look for in the upcoming debate? Well, uh you know, it's 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 hard to say. Traditionally, we look for the candidate who I think looks the most composed, who looks the most presidential, uh, who who responds with the best ideas. Uh, of course, again, a lot of that has been scrambled. Uh, Donald Trump really sort of catapulted himself to the Republican nomination by behaving in the Republican primary debates in a way that candidates have never done, which is just tossing insults, sort of lowering the bar, but making sure that the news media talked about what he said afterwards, because the news media is going to hang on the most outrageous thing they can they can find. And, and in some ways, I think the most important thing about these upcoming debates is not what you see when you watch it over the 90 minutes on Monday, but what you what gets replayed over and over uh, on cable news until it you know it's p- presumably removed entirely from context and and that you know it's a very soundbite driven media and really who gives the best soundbite at at this debate and the next two uh, I mean that that's incredibly important. If you were advising Hillary Clinton on this debate, would you have any advice for her? Well, I mean, the advice that I would give Hillary would be that I I think that she needs to come off as composed. She needs to come off as, uh, as competent. This election, what's fascinating about this election is it's hardly about Hillary Clinton. This election is a referendum on whether or not Donald Trump is fit to be president. And what I and so how I would handle that if I were Hillary Clinton was I would give Donald Trump as many opportunities to say the most Donald Trump like thing that he can possibly say. <laughs> and and, you know, Trump in the last couple of weeks has been a lot more disciplined. 
He's not run his mouth about topics that can get him into trouble as much as he did earlier in the campaign. Yeah, this this these this debate, the thing I'm looking for is what's the craziest thing that Donald Trump said? Because if Donald Trump comes off sounding even remotely normal, he wins the debate. And and that's a much lower bar than Hillary Clinton has. And so I think she needs to get him to be Donald Trump. Hmm. Say say something offensive about women or uh, minorities or demonstrate an incredible misunderstanding of how the system of government even works. Those are the things that I think if they're replayed on cable news the next day uh, will hurt Trump and help Hillary. If, if the thing that's played on cable news the next day is Trump making his, his pitch for why we should change leadership in this country, then, then he's won the debate. Mm, interesting. So, kind of, he should pro like uh, Hillary should provoke Trump to come up with those kind of statements, which will harm him. A absolutely, and I don't even know if she needs to provoke him necessarily. That she just needs to let him and stay out of his way. And I think one thing that I think sometimes when she presses her case, it turns off some voters, and. Uh, I think she really just needs to play defense, just not stick her neck out, not, you know, just be very conservative and 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 not take a lot of risks and uh, let him say something dumb. I think maybe we should do an episode on Hillary Clinton soon. Sure. <laughs> I mean, this it, the dynamic in this election is unlike any election election of our lifetimes. And and. It really has challenged a lot of assumptions that that people made about the election and how you become president in America. So moving on, um, tax returns, uh, presidents releasing tax returns. That is something that has gone on um, for a while. Um, it, I remember it being a big debate around Mitt Romney, who was very rich. Sure. And um, he released his tax returns. <laughs> he did release his tax returns, and um, as did Obama, but we mm -hmm. all, he was not very rich, so that wasn't a big deal. Um, uh, I don't recall other, I don't recall a lot of other times of this happening. So I'm not sure when the this uh, habit started, but uh, all presidential candidates for the last 40 years have released their tax returns at some point uh, during the election or, or you know, as they declared for election. Uh, Trump is an outlier. And Trump, uh, I don't, he's not going to do it. I, I really don't think he's going to release his tax returns. And uh, again, it's one of those things where you don't know if it matters or not. It, it matters to a lot of people. And, and the reason that, that candidates typically release their tax returns is your tax return is the most, first of all, it's a document that every American files. And it's really the most basic way to give a uh, clear picture of maybe a complex financial situation, uh, as many of these candidates 
have because they don't, you know, going back years and years, most of them don't work traditional jobs where they just collect one paycheck. Most Americans only have one, uh, one paycheck. They get one 1040 and their tax return is really simple. But, uh, but presidential candidates are, are not typically that simple. And they do it to show that they have no, uh, you know, they, they have no undeclared financial interests uh, that may affect their ability as president. Right. So we know that Hillary Clinton, for example, has made a lot of money from uh, speaking engagements where she goes uh, and she gives a, a speech to uh, an elite group of people and they pay her um, a lot of money to do that. Uh, and she's made a lot of money doing that. Um. But Trump, we have no, we can assume that Trump is very rich, but we don't actually know anywhere near how rich. Sure, sure. And I mean, originally they were released for conflict of interest reasons. Um, you know, the president wants to show that even though he's an Iowan, he does not uh, have a lot of money tied up in corn futures. So when he gives, you know, farm subsidies out. He's not trying to skim money for himself. And, and that's that's sort of the original intent. But in the case of Trump, we don't know how much he's worth. And, and most importantly, we don't know what he who who or what organizations he owes money to. And those could be as simple as foreign governments. We know he's involved in foreign banks. Uh, Deutsche Bank, he he owes almost half a billion dollars in debt to Deutsche Bank. And and that's one of the reasons why the Clinton campaign has really pressed this issue of tax returns, because he has to be able to say that he's not going to do favors for a foreign bank uh, so that they'll wipe, wipe his debt. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons that it's hypothesized that Trump doesn't want to give out his tax returns is because it will show that he's uh, less rich than he says he is, <laughs> which is a possibility. Um, what's not a possibility is that he's paid a lot of taxes, and, and that can really kill him. You know, Mitt Romney, uh, he lost the election in 2012 sort of because he had this image of an of an out-of-touch rich guy. And when you looked into his tax returns, you could see that because of certain tax laws, totally legally, he only paid an effective tax rate of 10 or 11 percent, where most middle-class Americans like myself, we pay about 30 percent. And people were outraged. Well, one thing we know about Hillary Clinton, because she's released all these tax returns, is over the last 10 years, uh, she and Bill have paid $72 million in taxes. There's, there's no way Trump has paid that many taxes. And that's why he won't release his tax returns. Uh, yeah, also, I think a lot of his money is in real estate. And I think that's uh, that's very hard to tax. It's, it's very easy to get around the IRS if you have a lot of money in real estate. Uh, that's my understanding. I have no idea about the details of that. Um, yeah. Uh, Trump, you know, and part of it is that he's a developer and developers live in debt. I mean, that's just kind of a part and parcel uh, with the job. 
but they have to take out giant loans to create these projects. And it's tough for for a candidate to go out and say, hey, you know, if you have it tough, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps <laughs> when, uh, you know, they're getting bailed out on bank loans by by multinational corporations. I mean, it's, it's not a good look. Okay, so um, reaching out to all Americans is something that I feel like uh, presidents generally do uh, and presidential candidates generally do. For I mean, I can think, for example, John McCain, who's a Republican, uh, I'm generally vote Democrat, but John McCain would go on uh, the John Stewart Daily Show, which I watched. Mm -hmm. He reached out. I feel like John McCain reached out to me as a demographic, right? Even if I vote for him or not, he made me feel like he was a president that uh, would represent me as well as everybody else in the country. Um, uh, Barack Obama would go. He went to West Virginia. He went to southwestern Virginia. He reached out to coal miners. They didn't like him. They still don't like him. But he tried. Um, and I feel like you can say that about many different political, can uh, many different presidential candidates. Um, do you have any thoughts on what that's like in this election? Uh, I mean, I. So obviously. They're out there trying to accumulate as many votes as possible. Uh, so therefore, they need to appeal to as many different possible voters as possible. Um, it's never a good idea to insult your audience, regardless of who your audience is. Uh, and, and because they're running to be president of all Americans, they should reach out to all Americans. Now, in practical terms, they don't really have to. You know, you only need half the country to get the entire office of the presidency. So, uh, but, but you need to at least make a show that, that you're reaching out to everybody. And, and Hillary Clinton got in a lot of trouble with her, her basket of deplorables comment because it made it seem like that she was willing to write off a huge uh, portion of the electorate, even if those people were not willing to vote for her anyway. And, and, and Mitt Romney had the same problem in 2012 with his, his 47% comment about how 47% of the country are living off the system or whatever. Um, so it's generally a bad idea to, to insult anybody. Now, this year, you know, elections are typically won by firing up your base. And Democrats win when they get all the Democrats to vote for them. Republicans win when they get all the Republicans to vote for them. Very rarely is there an election that's decided by the, you know, the people in the middle. But uh, this this election, you, you never know. I mean, we we seem to be more entrenched than ever, and and more committed to our political team than ever. Um, so it, it may not matter, and and it may not matter if uh, if they decide to insult the people voting for the other guy or, or if they try and capture the votes. One thing that is interesting about this election is that a lot of Republicans, high-ranking Republicans, uh, hate Trump. And so Clinton has, has definitely 
tailored some messaging to those people, but it comes at a cost. I mean, every time Clinton makes an ad that appeals to Republicans to vote for her, she loses votes uh, from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. And, and so, you know, whether or not it, it matters, I don't know. Yeah. So, Aaron, uh, you referred to Clinton's basket of deplorables. If you could mm -hmm. just elaborate on that. Well, so she she made this comment. Uh, she was speaking at a fundraiser, uh, so it was a friendly audience. It was they were all Democrats, and they were Democrats who were willing to spend money for Hillary Clinton's election. And uh, she said that she was was willing to essentially write off half of Trump's supporters because she said, "quote They belong in the basket of deplorables," mm -hmm. and what she meant all the deplorables that she was putting in this basket were things like racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia and, and just prejudices. And the purpose of, of, of that quote, if you read her entire quote, she says that she has to not worry about trying to court the racists for their vote, but that she, she is going to try to appeal to the other half of Trump's support. And, uh, and that really got, I think, that that part of her message got lost in the soundbite, and uh, and she essentially was accused of just insulting uh, half of Trump's voters, and there there was a strange reaction to that where you saw a lot of Trump voters mm -hmm. say, "I'm proud to be a deplorable," which right. I think is horrifying because that's essentially like saying, "I'm I'm proud to be prejudiced," but I think there's also a certain percentage of Trump support that feels that way. So, but she couldn't have won them anyway. So, how polite are American elections really? Not at all. <laughs> never have been, or never have been, and they won't ever be. These things have real <laughs> stakes, man. I mean, <laughs> I think there's. I mean, okay, so there's there's typically a code of politeness where we're not going to come out. I mean, what makes Trump really shocking is that he's he's definitely not the most racist candidate in the history of the country. He's just the most open about it. And, there, you know, Richard Dixon ran a quote-unquote law and order campaign, which was essentially code words for to to white America to say, don't worry, we're going to keep black America uh, in its place. And that's really what you get. You use, you get a lot of euphemism uh, and and other other ways to say impolite things. But but Trump, part of his appeal is he just he shoots from the hip. He tells it like it is, man. And uh, and so that's sort of gone away. But but presidential campaigns have always been brutal, you know, uh, uh, the the things that were said about Barack Obama uh, have always bothered me. How how they've really played up this whole like he's a secret Muslim uh, storyline, and and that's and that's offensive on a lot of levels. But there's nothing new about that. Uh, if you look, uh, Al Smith, the Catholic candidate for president in the 1920s, they they said the same stuff about Al Smith. Uh, that they said about Obama, which was essentially that he's different. He's got this weird religion. 
that means he takes orders from other people who aren't Americans. And I, I just I don't think presidential campaigns have never really been that polite. And I think the only thing that that is, you know, is different about this one is that Trump has sort of dumbed it down a little bit. But but I, they've never they've never been nice. What is it possible that there was a time right okay when i was young and maybe i just don't remember this well but when i was young the 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 george herbert walker bush and bill clinton election um i mean there were a few things that were said uh but it wasn't it didn't have the ugliness that this one has i i I don't remember it being what, there. One of the key themes of the 1992 election was uh, Bill Clinton's uh, potential sexual indiscretions. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, presidential can't look. There are big stakes in the presidential election. And so in a lot of cases, there's there's nothing that's that's ever off the table. And now there is a certain amount of kind of polite society language that it gets coded in, but I, I don't, I mean, I think, uh, you know, trying to find old mistresses and, and following people, you know, digging for dirt and, and all these things and trying to paint your opponent as, uh, as just a, just a horrible person and a terrible option. I mean, I, I think, I think, there's a long storied history of that in the United States. I mean, that's, that's what you get with your free speech. You know, people are going to say a lot of horrible things. So how different is this election? I, I think it's different, but, it, but the reason it's different is because Trump is running against all of that. You know, part of his appeal, I mean, watching a Trump speech, which is something that a lot of people don't, you know, they, they don't they don't even want to watch an entire speech, but it is it is mesmerizing. It's hypnotizing because he speaks at at like he's sitting on a bar stool. He he speaks almost at a lower level in, in the way that you know they say that the evening news is written at a fourth grade level, so so everybody can understand it. Well, because politicians are sort of by their nature trying to make themselves look good and make themselves look better than everybody else, they often have this incentive to really sort of, uh, you know, really use the fanciest language possible and really try and come off like a real smart guy. And that turns a lot of people off. You know, I, like Barack Obama, when Barack Obama talks, you know one thing, and that thing is that Barack Obama is smarter than you are. <laughs> and, and there's there's like not really anything he can say to make you unaware of that fact. And for a lot of people, that's not a good thing. You know, oh, even wow. though I think everybody recognizes they want their president to be a smart guy, they want their president, you know, it's an important job. They they really they want them to have all the skills that they need to do the job. But there are a lot of people who look at Barack Obama constitutional law professor and say, well, who made you so smart? And, and Trump really appeals to those voters because Trump talks to them like they talk to each other. And, and Hillary Clinton can't really do that. 
and, and and if you talk, you know, earlier you asked me, well, what does Hillary need to do to to come off great in the debate? In a lot of ways, the answer is she needs to stop sounding like she knows what to do. She <laughs> needs she need and and that's a like Hillary Clinton has a mental PowerPoint presentation ready for any topic, and while you may need statistics to support, you know, everybody needs evidence to support their position. Some people don't want to hear the evidence and they much, they're, they really enjoy the sort of appeal to their gut. And, and I think that's what Trump does to a lot of people. And, and, and a lot of people, these same people who really enjoy the way that he talks, they're willing to disregard everything that he's wrong about. I mean, they're willing to say, oh, well, he changed his position on this eight times, but I don't, it doesn't really matter to me. He tells it like it is. And if you asked anybody here in West Virginia who's voting for Trump why they're voting for Trump, they'll say it's because he tells it like it is. And that doesn't, when they say that, they don't mean that he's correct because he's demonstrably wrong in a lot of situations. But he talks to them like they talk to each other, and that's powerful. And that really is you know, that has a great appeal to people. Okay. I think, uh, I think we've been on for a while. It's time to wrap it up. Uh, so I'm going to cut right to the outro unless you have any further questions. No, I think like, you know, it was a very like, informative okay. talk that we had. Great. Yeah. I mean, I hope it worked for you guys. Let me know if you need anything else. Uh, will do. Uh, thank you, Aaron Hawley for being a guest on our show. Uh, thank you for listening. Please follow us and download our podcast. Tell your friends to listen as well. Feel free to email us with comments and questions at ellmedianetwork at gmail.com. Our audio engineer is Sarah Ibrahim. The conversation is for educational purposes only, and the opinions expressed in the show are not necessarily the opinions of the show, hosts, or guests. I am Ed Stone French. And I'm Pretty Gogoi. We are The Conversation on EOL Radio Network. See you next time. 